0: To stay properts. This is NDB Austin debate our man. Hey, this is my backlin. Hey everyone, this is Rick Style. This is a honky Tonk man, the greatest WWE intercontinental champion of all time. This is your wrestling show, Ottawa. Heck, they could use you guys over in WWE.
1: you're listening to the greatest wrestling show in the whole wide world. This
2: is wrestling with ideas. Welcome inside the CKDJ studios for Wrestling with Ideas, right here on CKDJ 1079, Ottawa's new music. I'm uh, the man they call Gibby, Zach Gibbon, your host for this very show. This is episode 90 of the Wrestling with Ideas radio show. We've done some changes around here for this Wrestling with Ideas show. Uh, we're going to make it more of a news centric show from here on out, but we still got some of the best interviews in the business coming at you. Uh, one of the interviews we've got, we've got former WCW producer and voice of the NWO. We've got Neil Pruitt on the show. We're to discuss the backstage environment uh, of WCW dealing with different personalities like Hulk Hogan Kevin Nash, uh, Scott Hall Sting, Lex Luger the whole nine yards uh, so interesting stuff there in that interview and of course we've also got our interview with Pat Leprad, who is a Quebec wrestling historian author who recently released a book called Mad Dog, the Maurice Bichon Story. I actually have the book uh, behind me right now. It's a very good book um, and one of the things too that he's on for for is the Femme Fatale 20 show that's right here in Ottawa uh, that is going to be going on on February 24th and guess what we've got two tickets for you uh, so tune into the interview and learn how you can win two tickets to the Femme Fatale 20 show uh, it should be a very fun show some great talents on there so you'll definitely want to tune in and learn how to win those tickets but for now let's challenge your thoughts and wrestle with some ideas Alright, let's get into our first bit of wrestling news and it's our most recent stuff. We're not even going to be talking about some wrestling. We're going to be talking about the business side of wrestling. Uh, This is some interesting stuff. The fourth quarter earnings for WWE were released today. And it's interesting how the company is growing. So revenue overall in WWE has increased by 10% to a little over $800 million. And a whole bunch of different sections of the company's revenue also increased. So the media division revenue, which is the most important one, uh, it increased by 11%. Live events revenue, so that's stuff like like going to do shows at stadiums, uh, arenas, uh, venues, the whole nine yards, they increased by 5%. The consumer products, so stuff like uh, cups, t-shirts, hats, foam fingers, whatever, uh, that increased as well by 5%. And even a genuinely bad money loser in WWE Studios, their revenue went up as well to $18.6 million as compared to the $10.6 million the year prior, so... Business in WWE is booming right now, Um, although obviously we're not in a wrestling boom period, but uh, the business is looking good. Uh, Things are up. Now one thing to note as well is, this is all revenue, this isn't profit, Uh, so that's going to be something that WWE has to address eventually, is sure that your revenue is going up and things are looking great in terms of bringing in all that money, but how much money are you actually taking home and putting into your pocket? Uh, That's one of the things that uh, WWE is having a little bit of struggle with, but the reason why things are looking so bright right now for WWE on the business end is that right now WWE is in current TV contract negotiations currently they're on the usa network in the states and right now like television rights fees are just so high in terms of trying to get uh the fee- the rights uh to television uh tv currently is going down obviously with cable cutting so companies are shelling out big dollars to try and own the exclusive rights to different programming and obviously wwe is a big media conglomerate in which they can uh Some content and get it released uh, to different platforms, and that's what we're seeing as well with a whole bunch of different television shows with Monday Night Raw. You got SmackDown, you got Main Event, you got 205 Live, you got all these shows being produced, you got the Mix Match Challenge that's going on Facebook Watch right now. So much of that is going on. Uh, They're trying to produce a different media, Um, and there's rumors right now in the midst of these television contract negotiations that Fox may be interested in buying out WWE fully, and that's why their stock price is so high right now. Uh, Currently, WWE stock, as I'm recording this, is at $35 a share. Now, things could be down by the time this recording's done. It could be up, Um, but it's fascinating. They're currently at record highs in terms of stock, and... The way these television uh, rights fees are going to go, how they're going to negotiate a new deal, are they going to go to Fox, are they going to stay on USA Network, maybe there's a surprise bidder that comes in, you never know. It's something to keep an eye on, because that's going to really impact WWE's business. Um, So, fascinating stuff there. Um, It just kind of goes to show as well that WWE is no longer a live events business. You know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, even like going into late 90s during the Attitude Era, Um, They were mainly focused on trying to get as much people into the building as they could. Now, with television and the way things are going, if you get that big rights fee, because a whole bunch of their overall revenue comes from their TV contract with USA Network. It's well over $200 million uh, that they're bringing in each year. Um, And it's a contract that allows the money... To go up. It's one of those, uh, I guess you could say, layer earning contracts where they start off small for a bit, but each year they get more of a boost in terms of their revenue and USA Network's paying them more money to keep them on. Um, and it's, it's fascinating and one of the things too is a lot of people are focused on the television ratings and right now television ratings for WWE aren't necessarily amazing in terms of other TV I'm sure USA Network is very happy with the ratings no matter what because they're still one of the highest rated shows on cable TV But WWE back in its day could pull in 4.0s and 3.5s. Right now, they're around the 2.2, 2.3 area in terms of television ratings. Um, Obviously, they'd want to get that number higher. But, you know, with the way things are going right now in terms of creating content, uh, putting it, you know, their TV rights deal, um, and currently their contract negotiations to try and find maybe a new home for Monday Night Raw, SmackDown Live, all that stuff... It's something to keep an eye on for WWE, and it could also be a big indicator on where the business goes from here on out. Uh, will we see creative really start to put the put on the gas pedal to try and create some interesting storylines and gets more people involved with the product to watch it? Uh, that will really help betterment uh, their t- television deal. So, it's something to keep an eye on in WWE. Uh, Of course, these fourth quarter earnings from 2017 look very promising, and with WrestleMania coming up as well, expect their stock to go up a little bit more. uh, Because obviously, there's so much interest in WWE around WrestleMania time where people will want to invest and they'll try to make a bunch of return as well. And they've got the big WrestleMania Stadium show with over 70,000 people coming in. Things are looking good for WWE right now, and don't let anybody else tell you otherwise, apparently. At least on the business side. Creative side, well, that's an entirely different story in and of itself. You better stay focused here. I'm sure he thought... He had this match
1: won at that point, as we all did.
2: Our next big thing of news is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, WWE 205 Live. Some of you may not have been watching it. Some of you may have been watching it. Uh, But the past couple of weeks, the shows have been really good. If you're wondering, man, the quality of the shows have gone up. I wonder why that is. Well, it is being reported now that Triple H is now in charge of the creative in terms of WWE 205 Live. He is the final say in terms of what goes over the air for WWE 205 Live. So Vince McMahon no longer in control of it. Uh, Now that's some interesting news right there. We already know that Triple H could do some great stuff. We saw that with the Cruiserweight Classic. NXT, obviously, is probably his biggest project. Uh, The UK tournament, the the Mae Young Classic. Uh, So he's definitely got the ability to make some great content for WWE. Um, And we're starting to see it now here. The WWE Cruiserweight Championship is on the line in a tournament right now, a 16-man tournament. They're bringing up some people to wrestle. We've seen Roderick Strong debut uh, for the WWE 205 Live brand. They're starting to put a little bit more emphasis on the wrestling, which I think is what it should have been right from the start. Uh, We're starting to see some elements of the Cruiserweight Classic being put into 205 Live. So I'm really enjoying the product so far. Uh, I'm liking Triple H's influence on it so far. Let's see if this is consistent. Let's see if it's able to continue on. Um, One of the things I'm interested in is Jeremy Borash another little tidbit of news here was recently signed uh, by WWE longtime TNA and Impact Wrestling employee Uh, kind of shocked everybody everybody thought that Borash would stay with TNA for life Uh, but he is sticking with WWE and he's apparently going to be a part of Triple H's crew at NXT and for the future when Triple H eventually takes over Vince McMahon in terms of the head regime uh, Borash's role would increase and he's going to be part of Triple H's squad so that's some interesting stuff there I wonder if he has a hand in what's going on on 205 Live as well that's something to look out for but right now 205 Live is looking good and you know what as a fan of wrestling I love some good wrestling and I'm sure everybody else does and 205 Live certainly is delivering the goods right now let's hope it stays consistent let's hope it's not just a short term thing let's hope that Triple H's vision of 205 Live and bring some cruiserweight classic elements into the show uh, really helps to exemplify it because Because 205 Live, there were some good moments to it. Drew Gulak has looked good. Um, I like Mustafa Ali. Um, I like some of the wrestlers there. Um, I just think that it's not really must see television. Hopefully, Triple H uh, is able to turn it around and make it some must see TV. And our final bit of news that I want to relay across is New Japan Pro Wrestling's Strong Style Evolved show will be live on Access TV. This is a big news for wrestling fans. Obviously, this is the second live showing of New Japan Pro Wrestling on U.S. television, the first one being their G1 special last year, also on Access TV. But this goes to show that, really, New Japan Pro Wrestling's expansion to the U.S. is doing really well so far. Uh, their show that's taking place in Beach sold out within 25 minutes of selling tickets over 5,000 tickets sold for this show a lot of hype around it especially for the American fans no announcement of any of the cards just yet in terms of who will be facing who but we've already got confirmation that Hiroshi Tanahashi Kazuchika Okada Tetsuya Naito and Kenny Omega are definitely confirmed to be at the show which definitely helped with the selling of tickets especially with the involvement of kenny omega who's turning into one of the hottest stars outside of wwe and i'm sure wwe must be Very, very happy to see that if they want to hire a new wrestler into the company. But I don't think that's going to be happening for quite a while. And I think Omega is very happy where he is in New Japan. Uh, One of the things as well, it just goes to show how hot this New Japan brand is right now. Again, 5,000 tickets sold in under 25 minutes upon being made available to sell. Some great stuff from New Japan. One thing I do have to note this commentary team that's coming up on Axis TV is Jim Ross and Josh Barnett. Now, Jim Ross, obviously one of the greatest wrestling commentators of all time, and Josh Barnett, a former UFC heavyweight champion, and also a former wrestler for New Japan Pro Wrestling. The last time they did the commentary for the show, uh, for the G1 special, honestly, they weren't very good, I found. I felt they were very unprepared for what was going to happen, and I felt that they didn't know the names as well. It was pretty much made evident during the show that they hadn't, no idea who some of these guys were which just kind of goes to show how ill prepared they were so hopefully they come into this show much better prepared and a little bit more enthusiastic into the commentary booth and i hope that josh barnett uh during the last time he was criticizing the Young Buck style if you want to get this product over you gotta just say you know maybe you're not a big fan of this style but you can't just be saying it all over tv and just make the show lose its credibility a little bit you don't want to do that so hopefully they're able to fix out those kinks but i am super excited for new japan pro wrestling this is very good for wrestling as well and hopefully the expansion in the united states continues to go well for new japan pro wrestling we're going to have a dojo built in la i believe soon so that's going to be some awesome stuff And that's your big wrestling news making its way through the circles this past week. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to bring it over to our interview with former WCW producer and the voice of the New World Order, the NWO. We have Neil Pruitt coming on the show and, of course, talking about the different segments he produced for WCW and a whole bunch more. You're listening to Wrestling with Ideas right here on CKDJ 1079, Ottawa's new music.
1: Teddy Biase, the Million Dollar Man, and you are listening to Wrestling with Ideas. And if you want to get your money's worth, you stay price. right here because everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. Because <laughs> the Million Dollar Man I mean, I mean, always gets his way. <laughs>
0: Hey, everybody, you're wrestling with ideas. This is Neil Pruitt from New World Order. We'd like to thank Zach for having us on, and we hope you listen to Neil Pruitt's tickets w WCW Nitro. Take your chance. Thanks.
2: Welcome inside the CKDJ studios for Wrestling With Ideas right here on CKDJ 1079, Ottawa's new music. I'm Zach McGibbon, and on the line with me, he is the voice of the NWO. He's a longtime producer for WCW, and now he's the host of the Secrets of Nitro podcast. I have on the line with me Neil Pruitt. Neil, how are you doing today?
0: New world order. I just thought I'd get that out of the way real quick.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. I always love to get that out of the way. Uh, But how are things going with you, man?
0: Wonderful, Zach. I appreciate you having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking to all the great folks of Canada. I uh, had the pleasure of going up there many times, doing lots of different interviews and things like that. So I'm quite familiar with your country. Many of your uh, hockey players we stole from from my... um, (laughs) Golden Green State University, we won the national championships when I was there. Awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm forever grateful.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, glad glad to have you on, and uh, I've, and we're very happy that you've used our talent here in Canada uh, for the hockey championships. Yes, sir. Um, but uh, let's start off. This is a question I usually ask a ton of our guests uh, when they come on. Uh, how did you first break into the wrestling business?
0: That's a good, good question, Zach, because actually I did – legit Greco-Roman wrestling first. I was in Toledo, Ohio because I was going to Bowling Green State University in Ohio and they needed someone to help out there and I said, yeah, sure, I'll I'll definitely be on the TV crew and come on over. So It was weird. Later, though, after I had experienced that in 1996 when we were here in Atlanta at CNN Center, I actually saw some of the same people that I worked with at that event and they were the wrestlers from Russia. And when I was at the event in Toledo in, 19, in the mid-80s, they actually stole all the tea and some of the tang and stuff like that to her on the uh, green room table. And then I confronted them many years later when they came to CNN Center and were there during the '96 Olympics. So it was pretty wild. So I got a long time ago. As soon as I, as soon as I was in college and, and eventually worked with Joe Hamilton, the assassin in the Flame working with Deep South Wrestling. So I've been around, worked with WWE as as well, uh, training some of the people like The Miz and Kingston and people like that. So it's been a really uh, enjoyable trip.
2: Uh, that's awesome yeah and we'll definitely be covering your uh, time in deep south as well but first i do want to get into uh, some of the time at wcw uh so i believe you broke in uh you started with turner broadcasting around 1990 and what was your first impression getting into uh turner broadcasting and just getting a sense of what wcw was like during that time
0: well that's correct 1990 i was the person that was with capturing the audio from the interviews in the interview room and I was asked by a friend who was a producer at the time named Chris Huber, if I could do that job. And I said sure, definitely. So as I went in the room though, I figured out that some of these wrestlers needed some help writing their lines. So I started writing like lines on a piece of paper and I'd hand it to wrestlers as they walked out the door and say, Hey, maybe you want to try these next time. And the announcers actually caught on to that. And some of them even had to critique them. Eventually, though, I got to tell them, look, I'm a package producer. I was a director of a nightly TV show when I was 25 years old and did three packages a day, whether it be golf and tennis tips, interviewing Vince Dooley from the University of Georgia, or uh, from Georgia Tech, so wherever I was uh, involved in doing those kind of packages. So once they let me do one package, from then on, I was a feature producer from that point on.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh during that time, you've seen a bunch of different people go through uh, and being in charge of WCW. The one I wanna, I'm wanna, i interested to know about is Bill Watts. Uh, what was it like uh, being under Bill Watts' guide? Was he very involved with how things were produced, or was he more on the creative end?
0: Well, he's on the creative end for the wrestlers. I think he came in with a hardcore attitude, but not, I'm not sure that it worked. Um, he was kind of a loose cannon. He was a little bit off the wall, I thought. Um, I liked Eric. His son was very nice. But as far as Bill goes, I don't know that the wrestlers really had much respect for him. He tried to change a lot of what they were doing at the time. And you know, trying to get him to work much more stiff and that, which was kind of old school, what people were doing. But I'm not sure that any wrestler at any time wants to really get hurt doing that just to prove himself being a bigger man than the next guy. So I'm not sure that it worked at all. I really don't.
2: And uh, also, too, with these different regimes that are coming in, uh, they'll probably want to implement their sort of vision. And obviously with Watts, it was more of an old school sort of vision Uh, Were the changes from each regime uh, very drastic uh, in terms of trying to produce a television show. Or was it something more along the lines of a couple little changes, but uh, it, it would still be different, but not a crazy different. And you wouldn't have to change your workload, that sort of deal in terms of producing segments.
0: Yeah, it wasn't drastic. Uh, They did some stuff with reworking WCW Saturday Night, having more interviews with celebrities. I'm not really sure that worked. Um, I was involved with producing WCW Saturday Night when Dan Bynum directed it quite a few years. I was luckily handed the torch to Keith Mitchell, who is a brilliant producer with TNA Impact Wrestling, and I was able to do that show as well. So I don't know that there was any drastic differences. I really don't also I thought that um uh, it just kinda you know, maybe maybe some wrestler was promoted over another one. But other than that, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference.
2: Mm-hmm. And when you were first coming in as well, uh, how did the boys treat you in terms of uh, when when their segments were being produced? Obviously, you were mentioning how uh, you would write lines for them and they were pretty good. Um, but overall, how was the treatment from the boys to you in terms of uh, making the segments for them, the trust that they had in you in order to make uh, the segments uh, come out good for TV?
0: Well, Zach, I was really lucky because having done the sports show that I did, I had been around professional athletes for a few years, and I really knew how to treat them and kind of what they needed from me. There's a trust factor there, yes. And there's certain ways you talk to them. You, don't, you can't be timid or afraid. And I was never really impressed with anybody's celebrity anyway. So I kind of treated them as if they were just a regular friend that I would talk to. Whether it be like somebody like you on the radio, or just somebody that was a friend of mine, so I really they they found out pretty quickly that I wasn't intimidated by them, and I wouldn't have any hesitation to try to put them in line if they needed to get there for during the interviews or whatever. We had to get a lot of uh, interviews done. We had to do them quickly and efficiently, and we made sure that happened. Luckily, we had a enforcer in the room, which was June Anderson, who it was uh, you know. Right excuse me so that helped a whole lot to have the right people in the room but i really never had many issues with them they knew i was there to help them as best i could and i proved it every time out i hope mm-hmm. so that's really relationship between wrestlers and myself it was a good
2: absolutely um and uh Transitioning a little bit more uh, when Bischoff started to come in, was that sort of the point where you kind of realize that things are really starting to uh, rapidly grow in terms of uh, the popularity of WCW or just in terms of a shift in attitude uh, to how WCW, because at that time, a lot of people within the company kind of viewed themselves as the number two promotion. But now with Bischoff coming in, he wants to try and go overtake McMahon uh, and that sort of deal. Did you notice like a shift in where uh, the mindset of the company changed uh, in terms of producing segments uh, writing for tv that sort of deal
0: definitely inside a track on this one because eric bischoff was actually kind of the third announcer doing all the i guess control centers you might call them where he would say who's going to go against and where so eric and i had worked in the interview room quite a bit and i found that Eric had an excellent work ethic i was tough he was a really on the top of his game back then, and he had good ideas. So with those good ideas, I thought that he was probably the most influential person in charge. They they let him run with a lot of those, you know, ways of doing things, and, excuse me, I thought it really worked out in the end. Um, Eric really brought a lot of fight. He brought a lot of the major players, obviously, from the WWE, and it really made us, you know, and being able to compete with Vince. And that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.
2: And definitely. And uh, one of those big players, as you mentioned, uh, Hulk Hogan, coming in around 95 uh, to the company. Uh, what was it like uh, producing for him? Did you ever get the chance to produce segments for Hulk Hogan? And if so, uh, what was it like producing for him? Did he have sort of a idea on what he wanted from his segments when they were being produced?
0: Yeah, I produced a whole lot of segments with Hulk. I probably did more than anybody with him. The after the whole parade thing was done in Disney, I really didn't have a whole lot to do with that. I did edit out packages out of that. But then I was in charge of the meeting between Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan to sign the contract with Ted Turner. And I still have that contract here in my basement somewhere. I'd have to look for it, but I had them both sign it. And uh, they the funny thing about it is, if you actually read the contract, it says, I will do whatever Neil Pruitt says when he says and stuff like that. So I threw in a couple of my own little phrases in there, which is a lot of fun. I also worked with and on the set of uh, Paradise, whatever, Thunder in Paradise. Yeah. So we did a segment there. And when Flair got beat up in the field, which was kind of one of my most controversial videos probably ever, I wasn't a huge fan of it myself, but it involved a lot of helicopters and, uh, Hummers and monster trucks and lots of NWO guys beating up Flair in the field but the cool thing of it is, is we had to shoot that with one camera to some of the shots in the limousine so the only way we could do that is with cooperation from Hulk In the way that he was able to know how to act in a film because when you do a single camera film style shoot, you oftentimes have to have people just back up like three or five seconds and you know, do the same thing over again so we can capture it at a different angle. So that was one thing that I was really impressed with. He knew right away exactly what I needed to do and why. And he really never had any question as to why I wanted him to do anything. Even with the NWO, really, there was times where they would talk about different phrases that they would use and they'd talk about funny things for maybe 15 minutes straight. But oftentimes, those thought processes wouldn't go together very well. So I had to have them do transition lines for me. Kevin Nash is probably the most difficult, but Hulk really never gave me much of a problem. Scott Hall is always willing to do whatever it takes. So it was a challenge. Yeah. As you know, these are pretty big egos you're dealing with, but in the end, I think we came out as friends and I think we really made some pretty good looking TV.
2: Mm-hmm, definitely. And, uh, speaking of good looking TV, the NWO segments, uh, after the NWO, uh, debuted, uh, Can you just take us a little bit into just what was the idea behind the NWO to try and make them different from everything else on WCW uh, television, Uh, just some of the different ideas that were brought back and forth between maybe you, Bischoff, and Hogan, or the rest of the NWO with the Hall and Nash, that sort of deal. How did that entire uh, nucleus of the NWO uh, start in terms of producing their segments? So
0: you're talking
2: about the new world order. Absolutely. Yeah. It was
0: a lot of fun. Probably my big claim to fame for sure. I had a lot of ideas that I wanted to put forth, and that being the black and white theme. I had seen some really cool commercials that I liked back in the day, which was Paul Mitchell. Paul Mitchell was a hair product line. He did a lot of black and white and very minimalist type looking commercials. So I really liked that a lot. (laughs) I think the funny thing about doing the videos the cutting back and forth real quick was kind of an idea that we used to be able to balance out the different egos and the amount of time that they talked on camera and we kind of wanted to make it look like Rogers was a very instrumental person that is uh, in, in charge of helping me brand that. He did all the film clicks and all the film scratches and all that on the videos and I also did some of the parts and stuff. So when we were doing those segments, we would bounce ideas back and forth. But one thing I think is probably the most innovative that came out of the NWO was something that I had kind of wanted to do and really thought it would be very good for the fans to be able to experience an interview like this. I handed Scott Hall my own VHS camera and said, Scott, you know, just look at the other guys and just kind of show us what it looks like to be in this interview and to show the big lights and stuff they were facing towards you and the cameras are everywhere and all the people in the background and what it was like to interact with the other wrestler. And I think that was probably the most innovative thing of all that I think really got people to kind of put them inside the interview, which I think really helped with the popularity of all of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, earlier Brand- on... Your-
0: Branding was a whole lot of fun.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, in terms earlier you were mentioning in terms of egos and that sort of stuff uh, and trying to deal with them. Uh, you kind of mentioned Ke- Kevin Ash a little bit. Were there any other egos later on as the Monday Night Wars were really starting to build up that you had to deal with uh, in terms of uh, making sure that they got their proper television time and that sort of deal?
0: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really sure how... Like, say, the Warrior, the Ultimate Warrior was with me. Um, I know I had a backstage incident with Goldberg one time. We were in, in Las Vegas, Nevada. It was around a Halloween Havoc deal. And I don't know what was with his contract with Eric or whatever, but he didn't know who I was, so he didn't really care about my job and what I had to say. But everybody backstage knew who I was and knew that I carried at least a little bit of authority, and I would say, look, dude, you gotta get this interview done. He goes, Well, I don't care about your interview. I said, Well, I do because it's part of the show and I gotta get it done now. So there's a little bit of an argument up there. And he goes, Well, if we got a problem with it, let's go take it to Eric. I said, Let's go right now. You know. So he and I marched to Eric's office and I told Eric what the deal was. And uh I think he let him slide for a little while longer, but then he ended up doing it. But I so I never would say that I had a great relationship with Goldberg. But, you know, um, I think he got pushed really early, and he re- I don't know how much he appreciated what he had, but that's kind of my opinion of him. Um, one thing I did always like, maybe I didn't love him backstage, but I was always appreciative that he took time for the young kids that were back there and signed their autographs and all the poor kids, you know, that would be with the Starlight Foundation or whatever. He was always willing to sign their autographs and spend extra time with him. So I did greatly appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's good and bad.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, And later on, uh, in terms of uh, 98, 99, when the real hot streak started to kind of go down a little bit for WCW uh, during that time, uh, Nash was in charge of creative or at least was part of the creative team. Uh, When you had to make segments that Nash wrote, was there any sort of conflict that uh, arose between you guys in terms of uh, writing as sorry, as uh, writing compared to producing or was it really just a business? relationship. we got to get these uh, promos done for TV. That's a real deal.
1: I
0: mean, I always got along pretty well with Kevin Nash. Um, I always thought that he brought a lot of funny lines to the NWO and obviously legitimacy with having had his run as Diesel at the WWE. So he's you know, a big guy and he carries a lot of weight in the business. We always got along just fine. I never really had that much individual words or ideas given to me through him. It was just one of those things where, hey, make the package for, you know, Flair and Hogan doing this or Macho Man and EDP. And so it really wasn't a day-to-day conversation. It was one of those things where they trusted me to do what I did and knew that I would try to do my best with the resources we had in the great talent that we had as far as the people running cameras and running lights and audio, we had some of the best in the business, and that's what made me successful. It wasn't all me by any means. It's a combination of all the great people I could work with. Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely. Um, During that time as well, when they're starting to transition, do you look back at that time and just kind of see, like, maybe not the quality of work uh, that you put in, but rather just the quality of the segments and what's being written starting to go down for you? And is it just something that you kind of look back on? It's like, man, I could have done that uh, better during that time. Or was it something where you look back as like, you know, know, I put together some good segments that just didn't go over as well as we hoped?
0: That's a good question. I think that Towards the end there, I probably didn't live up to my work ethic that I had had for so many years. I was very disappointed in the company in general that we had come so far, but yet fell so short. That was a disappointment because when Ted Turner was involved and AOL, Time Warner was not in the picture, we thought wrestling was going to be around for quite a while. And a lot of us were just going through the motions at the end. And I guess if there's anything I probably should have done differently, let's probably pick my game up a little bit more at the end and instead of kind of coasting it out for maybe a month or two. That's one thing I may regret, but I think I did my best with what I could, you know, what I could do most of the time I was there. And it was a very enjoyable time up until the last months.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, 2000 is sort of a, a year that a lot of people talk about in terms of WCW um when you look back at that year i know you were mentioning like you were looking back as like maybe the work ethic wasn't there was 2000 that sort of year where you look back as like man what were we doing around this time or were you looking back at 2000 cuz there's some there's there are a couple wrestlers as well that say they look back at 2000 they don't see it as bad as what sort of the fans make it out to be what what say you do you do you think that year 2000 uh was something that kind of gets uh, a little bit uh, Uh, I guess you could say crapped on a little bit too much, or do you think it was uh, in terms of that year in WCW uh, rightfully, you know, criticized for.
0: So I'm wrestling with ideas here, Zach, you have to probably maybe put me in on who was in charge, but I do remember some of the strangeness that Vince brought to the company. Mm -hmm. I wasn't fully on board with a lot of his ideas. I mean, giving the actor the belt, him taking the belt. I thought it was really childish BS. Some of the making fun of Jim Ross I wasn't real happy with. So, yeah, there were some segments that I just thought was somewhat juvenile. really didn't work. Um, But then again, throughout my career, there's quite a few things that I thought were strange ideas that I didn't think would be very popular. And frankly, I don't think they ever were. Dungeon, Dungeon of Doom being one of them. Um, kind to think of what else the, the uh, yeti was a weird idea okay. um so there there are a few flops along the way, maybe Kevin Nash's character Oz, that was kinda out there, so you know you never you never hit a thousand, you never bat a thousand, mm-hmm. so you gotta try things and you gotta see what works and move on.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I, I don't want to be too down on uh, WCW because there was definitely some great stuff. Obviously, we mentioned the NWO and some of the great stuff that came out of there. Uh, we also mentioned, too, uh, some of the stuff that I kind of want to bring up going back a little bit. Uh, Kevin Sullivan versus Chris Benoit, that sort of uh, feud is actually a really good feud that I wish uh, more people kind of knew about. Um, what was your role in terms of playing up that feud and in terms of producing for that feud?
0: Well, a lot of it was done live, so I really wasn't involved with a lot of those. I thought it was kind of strange that they brought real life into the whole wrestling genre there. I mean, I know it it did work. I was a fan of Chris Benoit's work. As a matter of fact, about a month before the tragedy happened, I was actually uh, producing and directing for WWE's Deep Wrestling MVP was going to have a match with Chris Benoit, and his son was at ringside, and it was just a nice time where Chris said, hey, you know, take a look at these moves, see what you think looks more devastating, and I was honored to have Chris do that. We had known each other at WCW. I don't think we knew each other well, but I always had a respect for his work and a lot of other, the, a lot of the other Canadians you have up there, I know some of them don't claim to be from Canada, but... I've always uh, liked people like uh, Ivan Koloff and I thought um, Abdul the Butcher was kind of a sideshow attraction, but I've always been a huge fan of Edge. Every time I met him, he was just such a great guy and so gracious to me. I never worked with him personally, but I always respected him from a distance and I always thought he was a terrific guy every time I ever met him, so... What is with that? Uh, some people not wanting to admit they're from Canada, like Keller Kowalski. I, I guess he probably did, but Gene Kaneski, yeah, so many of them up there.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of great Canadian talent, but it's weird that a lot of them don't really want to admit. I guess maybe some of them is gimmick-wise, right? Because I'm, I'm assuming Ivan Koloff. I right. I'm assuming Ivan Koloff doesn't want to admit he's the Russian bear, but also from Canada. Um, but uh, <laughs> right. that, that, that would be a weird gimmick. Well, I'm a piper. Uh, Roddy Piper, yeah, coming from Scotland, the, the Canadian Scotland, you know, I, I mean the, yeah, the right. Scottish-Canadian, that'd be hilarious, I'd actually want to yeah. see that on TV I was
0: fortunate enough to go to Bret Hart's house, that was fun, in, in Calgary, Alberta, beautiful oh, yeah. place he had up there, he was really nice to let us in his home and had a really good time with him, so yeah, it was, I've had a lot of good times in Canada
2: yeah, was, uh, so I'm uh, I'm assuming you've been inside the famous Heart Dungeon as well, uh, if if you've been to Brett's place, or, or was Brett's place at a different location at that time?
0: It was actually not that far away, but we just didn't get to go in there. I, I don't know. We were really in a hurry, and we were doing a lot of things. Uh, we just kind of were there, like, for a few hours, and we left. It was probably a four-hour trip to Calgary, Alberta. Didn't get to go to see Banff or anything. I didn't get to see anything fun up there. but. Um, we did really like have a great time with Brett and it was cool to go in and see all the trophies and everything he had.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and
0: they're brighter too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, one last thing on WCW before we move on to deep South, uh, when you look back at your time there, the final months, that sort of deal, uh, what do you look back on in terms of the segments and, uh, the promos that you got to, to produce on? And what do you look back on and say, man, you're really, uh, proud of what you did in terms of WCW?
0: Some of the funnest times were with Simon Dallas Page doing his homeless bit. We had a good time doing that. I liked on the NWO segments, they were a big challenge. Um, trying to whittle all that 15 minutes down to a couple minutes of a promo. And that's really one of the things that put me on a map as a producer, even though I'd done lots of other things before that. I enjoyed working with much a Man Randy Savage. We got to go to Harvard, actually. He was a man of the year one year, 1998 it was. And we got to go to where the Harvard Lampoon and all that started. And it was a big comedy kind of area where they had a circular room that they put you in, they lock you in, and then they can't get it because you don't know where the door was. I mean, just weird things like that. A lot of the fun times with Jim Ross and uh, doing stuff for WPIX New York, we went all over New York and Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco, Chicago. I mean, I've been blessed, man. I've been very lucky. And, It's been a wonderful journey, and I I would like to do it again. It was Mm -hmm. a lot of fun.
2: Definitely. Um, Let's go on to Deep South now uh, and uh, your time there. Um, First impressions going to Deep South as compared to working from WCW?
0: It's kind of a weird circumstance because there had already been someone there that was supposedly going to produce for Deep South. And Joe Hamilton was kind of taxed with this person, but he was falling apart. So they needed someone to come in and make a show happen. And Jody worked with him before I even got to WCW. He knew that I could make it happen. So he talked with John Laurinaitis, and they agreed that I would be able to come in and make a show happen. What was weird, though, is Vennie Davis had a situation up at W, which was totally different than what Team South was. OVW was charging for people to come in and learn how to wrestle. And that whole side business going, that we really didn't have at East South. And Danny Davis has used all his own equipment. And they expected me to do the same thing, when in fact it really doesn't work very well like that. You could see NXT and all that. They had really nice equipment. It's kind of strange because they picked my brain to find out what they should buy for all that. And in the middle of the night, they came to McDonough, Georgia, and took all the stuff and headed to Florida. It was kind of a weird parting there. I think I could still probably talk to a lot of people at WWE. I don't know that they really frowned on my work too much. I think Jody Hamilton and WWE didn't get along because Jody had ideas on how to break someone into the wrestling business, and WWE would often want to push people along very quickly, and Jody thought that they would get hurt. And he didn't think it was a good idea. So there were a lot of battles, word battles between them. And I think eventually they just got tired of it. So they moved everything to Florida. Mm-hmm. They never invited me to go. But it been an interesting project to be able to work on. But, you know, times move on and sometimes it doesn't work out. And that's one of the situations it didn't. I'm still proud of the work I did down there. We didn't have any money for graphics or early for Props or anything, we kind of had to do our own stuff, but uh, I think it's still airing on fight.com and some other places, so you'll be able to see people like Kenny Omega or MVP or some young Kevin, uh, uh young uh, Mike Knox, who was really great, and another guy that never really made WWE but was very gifted was um, o- his last name was O'Reilly, Ryan O'Reilly. and you could see young Ryback a lot of people under Kovey Kingston when he first started. So yeah, there's a lot of people that, you know, Zach Ryder, people that had wrestled with us, and obviously they had their names changed, but they're really good at what they did, and it was fun to have that much talent that was young and ready to learn, mm-hmm. and learning and wanting to listen. And they'd already seen a lot of my videos from NWO and all that, so I really didn't have to sell my too much. They kind of already respected me going in. So it was fun. And working with Bill DeMont, Hugh Morris, whatever you want to call him, you know, went on to obviously train a lot of wrestlers at WWE, but his work ethic was unbelievable. I got to his butt every day and helped me out so many ways. And always worked with Joe Hamilton was enjoyable because we were respecting each other for what we did. And he just kind of left me alone. And we made, I think, good things happen on a very small budget. Mm -hmm. Definitely,
2: good time. Definitely, Um, and uh, starting to run a little low on time, but I do want to ask one quick question. Uh, The secrets of WCW Nitro, the new uh, the podcast that you're doing. It's a rather unique podcast. Uh, Just explain to everybody uh, what the podcast is about and uh, where we can find uh, the podcast to listen to and that sort of deal.
0: So, if you're wrestling with ideas and you want to hear something a little bit different, I think our show definitely delivers that. We dissect different formats we look at segments that you may have seen and break them down and tell you exactly how to do them how we did them how much time was involved what the techniques were that we used to get them done and it's something unique that no other wrestling organization is doing and no other wrestling podcast is talking about so that's where our uniqueness comes from i am interviewed primarily by a guy named Guy, guy evans out of new york city who is an author He's writing a book called The Incredible Rise, Inevitable Collapse, of Ted Turner's WCW. He's talked to over 120 people, a lot of big names that I would have liked to talk to back in the day. And he's very knowledgeable about the business, and he remembers a lot of the videos that I created and is curious about it. And he's got really great ideas on bringing other people into the mix and different ideas on maybe going over events that I even forgot about. So it's definitely it's definitely different. And Neil for secrets of WCW Nitro has been a lot of fun. And I think we're in episode twenty two now.
2: That's awesome. I I, I highly recommend uh, people go out and listen to that show. Um, it's it's really interesting. Just kind of get a really a great breakdown of WCW Nitro. You're going through uh, Nitro in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, so if you want to go uh, listen to his uh, podcast, it's fantastic
0: very good you did a great job man
2: thank you for having us on hey thank you have a good one
1: welcome to the dog pound
2: hey
0: everyone this is rick stoner you're listening to wrestling with ideas
2: Welcome back inside the CKDJ Studios. This is Wrestling With Ideas right here on CKDJ 1079. Ottawa's new music where we challenge your thoughts and wrestle with ideas. And there was that interview there with Neil Pruitt. Great interview. Uh, Very happy that he came on. Of course, he's the host of the Secrets of WCW Nitro podcast. Go take a listen to that. Very interesting stuff indeed. Getting a production side into how Nitro was created. Now, we're going to take another quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're we're going to bring it over to our interview with Pat LaPrade. We've got a lot of interesting conversation there. We're going to talk about Maurice, mad dog, Vachon, his personal dealings with the late great legend that was Maurice. And, of course, we're going to talk about Femme Fatale, how it was run, how it was started, why it's coming to Ottawa. And, again, make sure you listen into to that interview and hear how you can win two tickets to the Femme Fatale show. All that coming up after this quick commercial break. <laughs>
1: Hi, this is Pat LaFried and you're listening to Wrestling with Ideas.
2: Welcome inside the CKDJ studios for Wrestling With Ideas right here on CKDJ 1079, Ottawa's new music. I'm Zach McGibbon and on the line with me, he's done quite a bit in the wrestling business. He's a Quebec wrestling historian. He's an author of three books, including the book I have in my hand here right now, Mad Dog, the Maurice Vachon story, and he's here to help so promote the Femme Fatale show that's occurring right here in Ottawa. That is going to be February 24th. I have with me is Pat LaPrade. How are you doing today, Pat? Very good. good. I'm glad to have you on the show and I'm really excited to have uh, you on. I just finished the Mad Dog book. I actually have it in my hand right now just for proof. I've hit it into the mic. So that is proof that I actually have it in my hand. I'm not saying words. Uh, So uh, i really enjoyed this book uh, and I really want to get into it first. Uh, What inspired you to write this book about uh, Maurice Vachon, the Mad Dog?
1: Well, uh, Bertrand Barron and myself, uh, who who both uh, wrote the book, um, we uh, first wrote a book on the history of Montreal wrestling back in uh, 2013. Uh, We wrote an English version of the book first, uh, as weird as it sounds, but... You know, because no uh, editors and uh, no publishers in, in the province of Quebec wanted to uh, edit us, because they thought wrestling was dead for too long in Quebec and all that. Obviously, they were wrong. Uh, but uh, so we published the book in uh, Mad Dogs, Menace and Screw Jobs in February of 2013. Then uh, it got some some press, even here in in, in the French market. Uh, so there's a French publisher who published a French version of it in uh, October of uh, the same year, October of uh, 2013 and as we were um, scheduled to go to our first uh, big Montreal book fair uh, with the book here in Montreal in November that very same day uh, Maurice passed away so we were like warmed by so many phone calls, so many media people wanted to talk to us about Maurice uh, that, you know, the, that night when we went to the, the the book fair, we met with our editors and, you know, and the editors have seen all the publicity that Maurice, is, that, you know, uh, had in Montreal. It was in every news, bulletin. it was in, in the next day, it was in, you know, every, every newspapers, uh, it was all over the place, so uh, we talked to them about, you know, maybe doing a biography on Maurice, and uh, they thought it was a, you know, a good idea. We published a book in April of 2015 in French, and it got picked up by ECW Press, who were, who were our publishers for the um, Montreal book as well, and it was released uh, last September. So that's, that's how we, uh, we got the book going.
2: Awesome, and and I believe you mentioned in the book as well. You actually knew uh, Maurice. Uh, you had a couple of uh, talks with him. Could you just describe the his character and what, uh, how, how knowing him, you kind of felt like a friend to him, that sort of deal.
1: I mean, uh, the first time I ever. Um ever ever contacted Maurice was for the uh, Quebec Wrestling Hall of Fame that I had uh, started in 2005 and because uh, I, I used to work for a promotion here in Montreal that was run by a former wrestler Paul LeDuc uh, who was very good friends with Maurice so he gave me his, his phone number I called Maurice, asked if I could get his address and explain to him about the, the Hall of Fame thing, he said sure because Maurice was such a generous guy and, and that's something that I witnessed Myself at the time, but I didn't know how. You know, he, you know, he, he was generous throughout his life. You know, he was that. He, he, he was generous with his with his uh, coworkers. He was generous with his family, and I could witness it myself because uh, every time I was sending him a ballot for the Hall of Fame. Uh, he was sending me back the ballot, but with, I don't know, sometimes six or seven, eight by tens signed by him uh, the very last time that he that he actually voted uh, before, you know, the. the because you know he, he started doing Alzheimer and all that, and and before the disease was was too advanced for him to be able to vote, the very last time he, he sent me the ballot, he sent it to me a little late. So he said he, he wrote a note on the envelope saying, maybe I'm maybe I'm late for this year, but you know I mean <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not too late for next year, you know. And and uh, he says you know something like, uh, keep going, you're doing a good job. I'm proud of you. And you know this is handwriting. You know this is not like from a computer. You know it was his handwriting from Maurice Vachon. I was like, wow. You know I, I never met him by then. You know, and he came to Montreal in 2008, 2009 uh, for his introduction in the, uh, the Quebec Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, so uh, so so he came here. That was actually the very first time I. Uh, I met with him. Uh, we play cribbage. I play cribbage with Paul because they were you know, his brother Paul the butcher Vachon was here, and uh, it was Paul and Maurice against myself and Paul's wife. <laughs> so I played cribbage against the Vachon brothers, which is quite insane. Uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, and yeah, so that was the first time I met him. He was such a class act all the way. And then I started went to um, National Wrestling Hall of Fame in Waterloo, Iowa, uh, and that was you know the the Hall of Fame he was attending every year, uh, and uh, you know so I you know I met him there a few times, and actually the July of 2013, uh, a few months before he passed away, that was the last time that Bert and I uh, actually saw him, uh, and by then the disease was you know quite advanced. You know he had trouble even finding his name. You know so that was. That was so sad to see him like this. But at the same time, his wife was with uh, was with him, uh, and um, and every time a fan wanted a photo, you you know she would say she would say Maurice, you know, a photo with with the gentleman over there, and and you know the rest of the time you would you know stare to the floor, and you know he wasn't really you know, into it, you know, you can see, you know, he didn't really know where he was all the time, but every time his wife was telling him, hey, you know, there's a, there's a gentleman who wants a photo, he would, his face would lit up, big smile, the big, you know, smile that we always known Maurice for, and, and he would take the picture, and right after, he would go back into his, his bubble, you know, so it was quite, you know bittersweet to see him like this you know um but you know i cherish every every moment i was able to uh, to pass with maurice mm-hmm.
2: and when you were starting to do your research into the book uh, what was the thing that really stuck out to you about maurice uh, when you learned about uh, him uh, and just his career in general what was something interesting that you didn't know before about maurice until you researched it
1: It wasn't about research. It was more about doing interviews because it was was how the wrestling business saw Maurice. I was saying that Maurice was a generous guy. Well, he helped so many people in the business, people that we were not even aware of, and, and we couldn't even understand how these people felt about Maurice. We had guys like Pat Patterson, Roddy Roddy Piper. Um, who, who told us without Maurice, we would have not gotten a career in this business. That all you know that's strong words coming from you know everybody knows who Roddy Piper was, and everybody knows you know that Pat Patterson, you know became uh became that genius you know behind the scenes and all that and 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 they they think that you know without Maurice they know, they would have not gotten the career they had and Piper especially uh told us that um you know, to me, Maurice was kind, you know, was like a father, and, and without Maurice, there would have been no Roddy Piper, and I want this to be in your book. <laughs> so, so, so that was really important to him. Um, and, uh, and, and so many other guys from, from his brother Paul Vachon to, to René Goulet uh, that Murray started in, uh, in Minneapolis to Baron Von Raschke um, he was just you know a, an amateur wrestler named Jim Raschke who, who was a prelim guy in the AWA and Maurice brought him back to Montreal to team with him and, and, and made him a German Baron Von Raschke and, and you know his career re- really like started there you you know, so, so I mean, um, he helps so many people and so many people are really thankful for Maurice uh, nowadays that, that that's the thing that I was so amazed to uh, to 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 learn about.
2: Interesting. Yeah. And uh, looking through uh, as well, some of the reviews, uh, one of them that's interesting to me was uh, Kevin Owens actually uh, commented on it as well, saying it was a great read as well. Um, Did you reach out to Kevin in terms of the book or did Kevin just find out about the book and said this was a really good book?
1: well i 'm good friends with Kevin. We know each other for i don 't know maybe uh, two thousand since when two thousand and four so that 's fourteen years now uh, but uh, but yeah I mean I mean Kevin is from the province of quebec if you in the you have to understand one thing Maurice by the end of his career you know he, he, he took his retirement in one thousand nine hundred and eighty six but Starting maybe in 1985, 1986, up until 1987, late 18, uh, 1987, and even the years after that, Maurice. Uh, became a huge celebrity in, 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 in Quebec he was well known because of the wrestling thing, but he started working in show business he was uh, He was the end met man of, of of Quebec you know he would, he would be the the, 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 the the second guy you know next to the host in, in one of the biggest talk shows in Montreal. He would do so many other shows, he would do radio spots, he even sang with a very young Celine Dion. On, on a type of a Saturday Night Live uh, French thing we had in Quebec. I mean, that's just amazing when you when you think of it. So he became, you know, he really transcended the world of, of professional wrestling in Quebec uh, to the point that, you know, he did, did beer commercials that were so popular and, and, and still are remembered today. So, so Kevin, like... Kevin was born in nineteen eighty four. So, so as as a, as a, as a as a child, he grew up with with the name Maurice Vachon resonating that much, and so he knew. And of course, because you know he's in the wrestling business himself, he 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 read and he knew about uh, about Maurice and all that. So 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 it wasn't surprising that you know I think he said something like you know he never met Maurice or he never but but you know he heard all about his accomplishment because. In Quebec, Maurice was and still is, uh, to a degree, a huge deal, you know, to... to, to uh, to the population here, so uh, so it was just you know generous of Kevin to uh, to to uh, uh, to give us a quote that we could actually use for uh, for the book.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, and uh, you mentioned a lot about uh, wrestling in Quebec. I specifically want to talk about uh, Grand Prix wrestling, uh, where really a lot of the popularity was uh, for wrestling in Quebec. Um, who is the guy? Who is the main booker? I guess you could say uh, who started up Grand Prix and made it. The the success uh, that it was in uh, Quebec. Uh,
1: I mean, uh, both Vachon were both Vachons were really. Um Involved into ideas, but Paul especially was the promoter. Uh, he, he's the one, because Grand Prix Wrestling was owned by, well, <laughs> I was going to say too many people, which, <laughs> is, which is true, but uh, it was owned by both uh, Vachon's, Edouard Carpentier, uh, Yvonne Robert Jr., and a lawyer named um, uh, Michelle Awada. And um, and, and and Maurice, because in Montreal you couldn't be the promoter and wrestling at the same time. So, so that's why the, uh, the opposition, All-Star Wrestling, the Rougeau family had All-Star Wrestling for, uh, for what, six years when Grand Prix started? You know, that started in 1965. And, and Johnny Rougeau was the big, you know, the head of the family and, and the, big, the big name, you know, the big draw. So he wasn't uh, the promoter. It was, you know, another guy, even though Johnny was the one pulling the strings, of course. But he couldn't have his name on the, on, on the uh, actual paper paper. So, for Grand Prix Wrestling, um, neither Maurice or Edouard Carpante could actually be on the license because they were the two stars of the company. So, that's why Paul Bachon decided that, you know, he, he will be the promoter, and he had he had a really, he really had a great mind, you know. He was ahead of his time, uh, especially as far as production goes. Uh, so, so, he was the one coming, you know, with with, with a few ideas. You know, Grand Prix Wrestling, uh, also a Wrestling was every Saturday at 4 p.m., um, and uh, Paul decided that Grand Prix Wrestling would be on Sunday, on Sundays at 10 or 11 a.m., and and that was something that wasn't done here, but it was already done in, in the United States. And since the Vachons, you know, wrestle all their life in the U.S., they knew about that. So so Paul contacted the TV station and blah blah blah, and and the TV station told him, well, you know, we, we, we don't have anything. You, you cannot run on Sunday mornings because we, 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 people are not watching TV. And he goes, well, of course they're not watching TV. You don't show anything on TV at, the, at that time. So, so, so he started to have that time slot. And... Um, And and it became a huge hit to the point that when in 1980 uh, Gino Brito uh, took his father's company and started to have TV with international wrestling, which is the last of the golden ages of Montreal wrestling, he took the same time slot on Sunday morning. So for like, I don't know, more than... 10, maybe even 15 years because at one point Vince took that that same time time slot in in the late 80s. Uh, I mean, for 15 years, people have been watching, you know, wrestling on Sunday mornings in in Quebec. So so that was Paul's idea at the time. Uh, So a lot of the ideas were coming from Paul, um, some from Maurice, uh, but there wasn't really like a specific booker who was, you know, you know, taking care of everything like you would see, you know, after that. So so there was a lot of people taking the decisions, and maybe that's – you know, also why Grand Prix wrestling didn't last as long as it uh, it should have been. Mm-hmm.
2: And who are who are some other stars that uh, Grand Prix really made? Obviously, we mentioned Johnny Rougeau, the Vachans. Uh, who else really uh, owed their career, I guess you could say, to Grand Prix in terms of helping them uh, progress as a professional wrestler?
1: Well, Johnny Rougeau didn't come from Grand Prix, obviously, because he was running the the That's opposition. Right. But uh, uh, in Grand Prix wrestling, I would say that Dino Bravo started in Grand Prix. Well. Actually no, Dino know, Brad. was started an intern in in uh, in All Star Wrestling, but you know, it was really like a, a wrestling war. You have to understand that it was pretty much like the Monday Night Wars with WCW and WWF. They were really, you know. Uh, at odds and and you know trying to get the same talent and, and, and they were both its you know I mean there were like a million people watching on saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, and there were at one point a million watching on Sunday morning as well in a province that you know, had at the time maybe, I don't know, five or six million people. That's very strong numbers. Uh, so, so Dino Bravo was teaming with Gino Brito, the Italians, with Rougeau, and they switched for Grand Prix. And that's really where Dino uh, started to, 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 get, you know, to get a break with Gino teaming. So that's really where he, made, he started to make a name for himself. Um, I mean, Andre the Giant, Andrew the Giant started with Grand Prix Wrestling. The very first territory that Andre did when he came to North America was Montreal. And Montreal was his home for a very, very long time. People don't realize that. But, I mean, because New York took over at one point. But the first couple of years that Andre was in, when, you know, started in North America, it was here in Montreal working for Grand Prix Wrestling, having those great matches uh, with Don Leo Jonathan that was called, uh, that were called, um, the first one actually was called the Match of the Century. Because you know that was two big giants going at it. You know the biggest crowd in the history of the province of Quebec was Grand Prix Wrestling doing a baseball stadium show where the um, where the Expos were playing at the time, Jarry Park uh, in 1973, uh, which drew a little more than 20 29,000 people um, with uh, Maurice on top uh, working with Killer Kowalski. And and Maurice at the time was, was a heel. Uh, and it was supposed the, the, the early plans were supposed to be Maurice and Joe LeDuc, the LeDucs and the Vachon brothers they were, you know, both set of, of brothers. Uh, well, actually the LeDucs were not real brothers, but still, you know, to the fans, it was, it was a battle of brothers. And I mean, it sold out so many times in Quebec city and Sherbrooke uh, in and all over the province, but Montreal, because as, you know, as I said earlier, Paul couldn't wrestle in Montreal. Couldn't wrestle at the forum, so uh, so Montreal didn't really see much of that feud. But the rest of of the province did. Uh, but the plan was still to make Maurice and Joe Duke the Top two stars in each team as a single to, to main event that show. But Joe and Paul LeDuc went back to All Star Wrestling uh, before the show even started to be promoted. So 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 Paul uh, Paul you know was talking to Maurice and he goes, who's who's the biggest heel in the history of the you know, of Montreal wrestling. And he goes, well, that's easy. That's Keller Kowalski. He said, okay, so you're going to be facing Keller Kowalski. He said, but I can't do that. I mean, it's going to be heel against heel. And Paul said, no, because, you know, your name is Maurice Vachon. You speak French. His name is Keller Kowalski. He's a Polish ugly giant that only speaks english you're gonna be their heel you're gonna be the fans heel so you're gonna be the baby face in that match even though you won't change a bit you know how you fight and how you 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 build your match and how you 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 do your thing in the ring and that's exactly what happened that's exactly what happened maurice from that point on maurice was never able to be a heel again in uh, in Montreal, so that was a huge, huge match, uh, and the big show. Too bad, though, because that was in July of 73. By December, the Vachons left Grand Prix in early 74. Um, there were uh, joint shows between the two promotions, and, uh, and, and I mean, Grand Prix was never a player after that, and, and All-Star Wrestling kept going until uh, 1976, so they kind of did they, they, they kind of won the war, even though when Grand Prix was really, really hot, uh, 1972, 1973, uh, they were bigger than, than All-Star Wrestling, but just for pretty much like WCW in a sense. You know They were bigger at one point in that rivalry, uh, but at the end, WWF won, uh, pretty much the same thing happened here.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. So definitely uh, let people know to get the Mad Dog, the Maurice Vachon storybook. Uh, it's great, great book and a high recommendation. Uh, I believe it's on Amazon as well. If you want it to go grab it, yeah. Uh, there's also
1: are, an audiobook. If people are into this, so uh, uh, there's an audiobook uh, available as well.
2: Awesome. Uh, so we'll switch gears now over to Fem Fatel, which is one of the uh, shows that's coming here to Ottawa An all women's promotion and all women's show. Uh, just to Describe how Femme Fatel started and uh, why you decided to go with an all-women's promotion.
1: Yeah, well, uh, Femme started in 2009, in September of t- 2009. Uh, there was a promotion before that called ALF, uh, which was a mix of you know, mostly women, uh, but some, some guys would, would, would be involved as well, uh, some mixed matches and stuff like that. Uh, I was involved at the very beginning of ALF in uh, the summer of 2006, um, uh, 2007, I mean, uh, and I had left the promotion. I had other other stuff, uh, other stuff at the time. So I left the promotion. Uh, it kept going until the summer of 2009, and it uh, it, it, it closed down. So uh, in September of 2009, um, Lufisto, who's a very well-known um, female wrestler on the uh, independent circuit, uh, who's from Montreal, who's from the province of Quebec, I should say, she's from Sorel. Um, her with two other people started the Femme Fatale. Uh, promotion and uh, a few a few shows into uh, into into the into started being involved because you know, Lufisto was a friend of mine and the people uh, who started that with her uh, were friends as well uh, so I started, you know uh, being involved, I was announcing, I was re-announcing, I was interviewing backstage, I uh, started to get, you know, you know, into the meetings and everything, so I was, you know doing, a, you know, I was <laughs> so one, one day there's the, 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 a, a wrestler, the cheerleader Melissa, who said that I was kind of the uh, Jeremy Borash of Time Fatale you know, cause <laughs> I was the jack of all trades, I could do pretty much everything. And, um, and I just enjoyed the product. I really, really enjoyed the product. I, I loved it when the ALF promotion was there. But with Femme Fatale, it was a higher skills, you know, higher quality of wrestlers because there were more and more international wrestlers coming in. Uh, you know, over the years, we got, uh, uh, well, I mentioned her, but Chile Leader Melissa was one of the top in the business. Uh, we had Sarah Del Rey, who's now, um, who's a real name is Sarah Amato and who's uh, training all the uh, the women at WWE right now. Uh, I mean Amber Moon that you can see on NXT, who is the champion NXT. You know wrestle at Fatal uh, Billy Kay that you see on NXT also wrestle at Fatal. So we had like Japanese Australians, uh, Paige's mom, uh, Sarah Knight who's such a heel. You, you got to see her work <laughs> at least once in your life. She's so good at it. Um, she came to a lot of Fatal shows. So we. Had Talent from all over the place, from Canada, from Montreal, from Quebec, from uh uh, the States, uh, Europe, and, and I mean, all over the place. Uh, we're doing like, I don't know, maybe three shows a year, two two to three shows a year. Uh, and in 2015, um, one, of, one of the guys, Stefan Briere, who started the, 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 the promotion with Lufisto, uh, left. Uh, so I took his place as uh, he was a booker, so I took his place as booker. We ran one show, and we were sponsored by a promotion here, NCAA uh, that, that's the promotion that we were with when uh, Time Fatale started in 2009. And by 2015, there were a new owner of the promotion who didn't really see um, the fanfatale brand as something that he wanted to continue. Uh, so uh, he, he tried. So, so, so he, he, he told me and Lufisto that you know he wanted to have, uh, is, you know doing his own thing with this and, and, and uh, maybe book more local girls uh, and, and less you know international talent. So that really wasn't something that me. If were interested in, so uh, so he let us go, and uh, he did two shows with this, and then just completely stopped, um, you know, running the FemFetal brand. Um, so that was I think in 2016 the last show, um, and FemFetal was known to be one of the good, you know, women's promotion in North America at the time. Uh, before you know, it started to be only a, a local brand. Uh, so you know. It was was always in the back of my mind that you know since then no women's promotion was here in the province of Quebec uh, and uh, myself and another guy that I know for years uh, you know always you know talked back and forth about you know maybe uh, restarting the brand and all that and finally you know we took the decision to try it in another market which is Ottawa uh, because we wanted to see you know if it had potential uh, elsewhere than just you know in Montreal and 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 plus that the NCW promotion at was not in Montreal anymore. It was in northern, uh, maybe I don't know, maybe 40 minutes north of Montreal uh, a small town there. So, you know, it wasn't the same so we, we you know, we, we associate ourselves with uh, the C4 promotion, which just Great in Ottawa, if you're not, you 're know, that I mean if you 're from Ottawa, from Gatineau, and you 've never been to a c four show you 're really missing something. This is really like the last show I was at in in January drew uh, five hundred people uh, who are just you know crazy, and the the atmosphere is so great over there, um, and we associate ourselves with uh, C4 to uh, to restart to relaunch the femme Fatale brand with the same old formula of bringing you know outside talent, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what what we doing what we're doing this time around you know so we have the Sanfretta champion because the title always kind of you know uh, was kept around so so the femme Fatale champion is actually Mercedes Martinez who. Um, People have seen in the uh, Mae Young Classic uh, last year with WWE, who's done some NXT shots as well, and who's a veteran on the uh, the, uh, independent scene for years and years. So she's going to be facing Vanessa Craven, uh, who's from Montreal, wrestles regularly in Ottawa, and is so so freaking over, so oh, yeah. huge. And at C4, I mean, people just, you know, love Vanessa Craven, so it's going to be a very good matchup. Uh, we're also having uh, Nicole Savoy, uh, who's from the West Coast, uh, who's the uh, Shimmer champion. Shimmer, was, you know, probably the biggest uh, women's promotion in all of uh, North America. Um, she's their champion, uh, and she was in the Young Classic as well, so she's coming to town to face Tessa Blanchard, another girl that you... uh uh, that people have seen on the uh, Mayon Classic. Tessa Blanchard, who is the uh, the daughter of uh, of uh, WWE Hall of Famer and uh, member of the Four Horsemen, uh, Tully Blanchard. Um, so that's going to be another good one. Uh, former Impact Knockouts champion Jessica Havoc uh, will face Samantha Heights. Uh, we also have Hudson uh, Envy from Ohio, uh, who will face uh, a local girl named uh, Stephanie the Striker Sinclair and we also have a tag team match with, oh, we also have Casey Spinelli who's uh, wrestling Alexia Nicole who's going to have a tryout very soon if if, uh, if I um, am correct uh, and uh, there's also a tag team with um, with uh, with uh, Alexandra Bell from Toronto uh, teaming with uh, teaming with uh, Kira from uh, from Sherbrooke against, uh, against the returning Misty Heaven who's been uh, one of the leading women wrestling in, in uh, uh, Ottawa, and, and getting over the years, uh, teaming with Stacey Thibault. So we have six matches, but it's going to be a real packed show, uh, a lot of action. You know, people will see among the best uh, female competitors that you can find out there. Uh, and there's a meet and greet at 6:30. Um, bell time is at 8 o'clock, and there's also um, an after party. Um, an after party uh, following the event at uh, Grace O'Malley's at 1151 ogilvie so people uh, will be able to uh, to see some of the uh, talent there uh, I'm going to be there myself and you know so that's Pretty much. <laughs> I think I probably answered a few questions of yours <laughs> and, uh, into only one question. That's usually what I do. But uh, uh, the show is on uh, – the show is at the Vanny Columbus Club on, um, on McArthur uh, – uh, McArthur uh, Road, 260 McArthur in Ottawa, and people can buy tickets there or also at Vertigo Records on, uh, at uh, 193 Rideau uh, in Ottawa as well, or simply online if you go to the Facebook page, all the details are there
2: awesome stuff and one of the things as well we are going to be giving away two tickets to Femme Fatale I know I'm going to be there I'm super excited for this uh, I'm, I'm
1: following I'm following Maurice Vachon you know he was a generous guy I'm a generous guy as well so two tickets for your uh, listeners and uh, fans on uh, online so uh, hopefully uh, hopefully uh, everybody will, uh, will will enjoy the show
2: so yeah keep your eyes out on the Wrestling With Ideas Facebook page once we upload the episode make sure to like like It and share it to get yourself into the draw to get two tickets to the Femme Fatel 20 show on Saturday, February 24th, 2018, at the Vanier Columbus Club. It's going to be a fun show and a lot of great talent. So, thanks again for coming on, Pat. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, the history of wrestling in Quebec, uh, and uh, it's learning, knowing some of the wrestling now, and just kind of seeing where it uh, grew from uh, really opened my eyes and uh, just to see where everything grew uh, as f- uh, for wrestling. So, uh, very happy. Happy to have you on, and uh, I wish you the best of luck on the Femme Fatale Show.
1: Thank you. And if I may add, uh, uh, April 10 is going to be a great documentary on, uh, on HBO, uh, co-promoted by HBO and WWE on Andre the Giant, which I'm a field producer from, uh, for. And uh, I'm also in the process of writing a biography on Andre the Giant uh, alongside Bertrand Hebert, the same guy I wrote the uh, Vachon book with. Uh, so uh, if you can put that on your uh, calendar, it's going to be uh, another good one. And if anyone wants to uh, follow me on on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's Pat Laprade. Thank you very much, Zach, for having me.
2: Hey, thank you for coming on, Pat, and I wish you the best.
1: Thank you. This is Take the Steak Roberts. You
2: know what you're listening to, don't you? Yeah,
0: wrestling with ideas. Here's one idea for sure, though you don't play with snakes. If you do, you get bit.
2: Welcome back inside the CKDJ Studios. Again, this is Wrestling With Ideas right here on CKDJ 1079, Ottawa's new music, where we challenge your thoughts and wrestle with ideas. And that was a great interview there from Pat. And thank you, Pat, for giving the two tickets to Fem Fatale. That's right. Uh, so go on to the Facebook page, Wrestling With Ideas, and make sure when the podcast gets uploaded, that podcast episode, you like that podcast and you share it across and get entered into the draw to win two tickets to Femme Fatale 20. 20. Uh, thanks again Pat for that. Let's get to your questions here. Uh, again you can send in questions either via email to WrestlingWithIdeasRadio at gmail.com or you can comment on the graphics I'll put up on both Facebook Twitter and Instagram where you can reply to the graphic with your question uh, so let's get to our first question we've only got two this week uh, from Facebook. That first one comes from Colin Scully. Who's the next big NXT star to come to WWE and why Um, I believe the next big NXT star to come to WWE will be Alistair Black I really like his character and he's really gotten over with me and his in-ring work is fantastic Uh, loved his match against Adam Cole at NXT takeover Philadelphia Um, and he's got a real bright future I'm really excited to see uh, where his uh, WWE career goes hopefully they treat him well uh, up on the main roster because I think he's definitely got something about him that makes him special and hopefully the WWE really realizes that and they use him to their full advantage when he gets called up but I believe he's the next big NXT star to come to WWE and our final question here Jacob Milbury will Ronda Rousey fit in with the rest of the WWE well I sure hope WWE <laughs> I'm sure WWE hopes so um I believe she'll fit in just fine. She's a big wrestling fan. Uh, she grew up on Rowdy Roddy Piper. That's why she took on the moniker of Rowdy Ronda Rousey. Um, I think she'll fit in great. Um, she's learning how to wrestle. Obviously the performance center, uh, is going to really help her, uh, expand her wrestling move set and, uh, become a better wrestler. Um, obviously she's got the exposure around her. She's bringing some attention to WWE that has not been seen to WWE in quite some time. Um, so that's going to be big for her. Hopefully WWE does not kill the appeal of Ronda Rousey and realizes what they got. Um, and the matchups for her just vary. It could be anybody. She could be facing Oscar. Uh, if Oscar ends up being, uh, the champion by the time of WrestleMania, um, She could be facing Charlotte. Uh, She could be facing, she could be in a tag match with the rock versus triple H to Stephanie McMahon. Like it's really up in the air of what it could be. So I'm hope I bet you they're hoping that she fits in well, because it's going to be essential for them if they Deem her a success. Well, that's going to do it here for this edition of Wrestling with Ideas, episode 90 in the books. And we got nine more episodes on the way. We're getting close to 100, baby. Uh, so, you, But if you want to see, hear the past 90 episodes, you can check out our archives at wrestlingwithideas.podbean.com. It includes interviews with the likes of Jake the Snake Roberts, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Cody Rhodes, Ted DiBiase, Rick Steiner, Nick Aldis, the current NWA World's Champion, Eli Drake. Uh, The list goes on and on, and uh, you can go and listen back into the archives there and listen to those interviews and our past uh, reviews on different pay-per-views if you want as well. Also, too, I've got a special podcast exclusive episode coming up. Uh, We finally did the third disc review for the WWE unreleased DVD set, uh, which was a lot of fun to do. I'm glad uh, Marco helped me out with that. Uh, so that will also be released as well onto the pod bean uh so that'll be two episodes of wrestling with ideas coming up this week so it should be a fun one uh but until then guys have a good one
1: You have just listened to the greatest wrestling show on the planet.
2: If you want to listen to older episodes of the show, including full interviews, make sure you check out Wrestling With Ideas on Podbean and on the Podbean app or listen to us on our new SoundCloud page. We can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio,
1: Player FM, and many more. Make sure you keep on tuning in every Thursday at 6 p.m. to Wrestle With Ideas.